Hello and welcome to the menu on Monocle 24. I am Marcus Hippi. In the next half an hour, Formula One racing driver Jensen Button on a new whiskey he has created. Every time I've tasted it, I've been like, guys, this is the wrong price point. <laughs> we need to be higher when you compare it to the other blended whiskies out there. But everyone's brought me back down to earth and said, no, this is a whiskey that everyone should be able to enjoy. Then we hear from the Icelandic chef Sola Eriksdottir about how veganism has changed in the last 40 years. 40 years ago, it was all about you were doing it because of your health. But today, it's like a political movement. All that and a dinner soundtrack recommendation ahead on this edition of The Menu here on Monocle 24. Former F1 world champion driver Jensen Button isn't an obvious guest for this programme, but believe it or not, he is our first guest today thanks to his new foray into the spirits world. Together with drinks consultant George Kutsakis, he has developed a blended Scotch whisky called Coach Build. Both Jensen and George joined me in the studio to explain how the idea was born, why blended Scotch whiskies deserve more appreciation, and what it took to create a new whisky brand during the pandemic. First, here is George. I've always wanted to make my own whiskey. I've been in the industry, the whiskey industry, quite a long time, and I always had an idea of creating a really good blended whiskey. A Scotch blended whiskey. The Japanese have done it really, really well over the years, and they've really made the category get way more respect worldwide. The Japanese, and I always wanted to do that for Scotch. And it came about like one of our mutual friends just introduced us because Jensen's really into whiskey. He likes his whiskey, and I think that's when we started. We started discussing, and he was starting his own coach building company at the time. Yeah, so coach building cars, which is really big back in the sort of forties, fifties, sixties, where Basically, you'd go to a company like Rolls-Royce or Bentley and you would buy a chassis and an engine and they would send you to a coach builder, whether it was Mulliner, Radford or Hooper or someone like that. And they would actually build the body. So all the different parts of the car would come together from different companies. It wouldn't be built under one roof. So it's like a collaboration, if you like. And for me, that's really exciting, you know, having this coach building company. And uh, when we talked about whiskey and blended whiskey, there were a lot of parallels there. So it was quite exciting for me. What kind of parallels are we talking about? So at the same way Jensen just mentioned that all these different components come together to make this one machine and a blended whiskey. A lot of people, you know, scream single malt and single malt whiskey is great, but it's all from the same distillery. It's the same distillate. It's made in the same stills. It's made in the same way. Whereas a blended whiskey, we get liquid and coach built, for example, from every single region of Scotland. We get it from all different distilleries, grain and malt whiskey. And to put that all together to create like a really balanced blend is a very difficult craft, the same way as like making a coach-built car is a difficult craft to take all these different components from different companies. So we were just having this conversation and then just kind of stars aligned and we decided to start this together. And a fascinating fact, by the way, is that you, you didn't meet face-to-face. Actually, today when we are doing this interview, this is the day when you meet face-to-face for the first time. So yeah. once you had decided to create Coach Build, how did that continue? What were the steps? Jensen, you were in LA and George, you were in Taipei. Yeah, I mean, it was a long journey. Like, James, Jensen's manager, came in. We just started making the plan. It was super fun, actually, thinking back. Like, it was great having, like, having his input and, like, the whole brand. I mean, the brand's called Coach Belt. Making the bottle was cool, right? Yes. That that was fun. 
Yeah, because the idea behind the bottle, back in the day, there was a car that had the birdcage frame, if you like. So the body of the car was like this birdcage frame, very skinny frame. And if you look at our bottle itself, you have these indents, very like a birdcage car, a coach book car back in the day. So it was really interesting trying to do something a little bit different. You know, a lot of whiskies have a very similar style of bottle, which I respect, but it's nice to try something different. It still looks very classy, but uh, with that coach built element included. And I would imagine you had quite a few Zoom calls. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we had a lot. It was just like really fun during the whole lockdown too. And I, yeah, I'm just like really happy how we brought it yeah. all together. Like me in Taiwan, him in LA, the whiskey being made in Scotland. Like there's obviously a, a big logistical thing. Yeah, I think it just proves that you can do it from different countries and on Zoom calls. We were able to, as you said, design the bottle, come up with the name and also, you know, go through the blending process for George and was sending me different whiskies and do you like this? Do you like this? This is before it's gone into the sherry cask. So this is not exactly how it's going to taste. It's like, well, it tastes pretty good as it is. But uh, and then it went to the sherry cask and it just it's just rounded off beautifully. Can you tell us more about those discussions you had, for example, when it came to the design of the bottle? Yeah, well, we wanted, as I said, we wanted to do something a little bit different. And we had sort of four or five different designs, and they had to have a play on cars and coach uh. building. That was the thing. So we, we came up with four or five different designs, and this is the one that everyone just loved. Yeah. It really stood out as a special design. And it obviously costs quite a bit more to do a, a unique bottle compared to what most whiskey bottles cost, but totally worth it because it stands alone. It's very unique in the way that it's designed. And the interesting part I wanted to see as well is that the guy we got to design it has never designed a whiskey bottle before so we got a guy in like hong kong a scottish guy mm-hmm. funnily enough and i wanted someone who i didn't want to go to a company that's designed like all the whiskey bottles for all the big brands actually we, we wanted someone who could just look at it from a different perspective because this is just like two industries coming together and he did an amazing job really happy with his work and just the fact that he'd never done anything like it before is the fact that her bottle looks so different to totally a lot of nailed it yeah he nailed it yeah he did <laughs> amazing so, so what kind of plans do you have for the future now what's happening next well first off we want to like nail our launch you know get a very affordable you know amazing blended whiskey out to fans and really push the name of scotch blended whiskey out there you know get people to see that you know, you don't need to spend hundreds of pounds on a bottle that you can really enjoy. A whiskey has so much balance, so much depth. And then for me, I really want to like expand that. And we've discussed this with Jensen. Like we've got plans for like aged expressions. So we want to do like a aged blends. So like an 11 year old, we're going to do like a play on, I mean, we don't share too much right now, but yeah, just like different ages, you know, do more premium categories. And we also want to do a lot of partnerships and different collaborations, special releases. There's like... A lot of fun things coming up. Yeah, there are. But I think for us, this is a really important period for us, for people to taste the whiskey, first of all. Every time I've tasted the whiskey through the process, for both of us, you know, you take a a sip of a dram and uh, you just can't stop smiling because it's (laughs) so good. And I think it's priced well that... A lot of people can get to taste this whiskey. Every time I've tasted it, I've been like, guys, this is the wrong price point. (laughs) We need to be higher when you compare it to the other blended whiskeys out there. 
But everyone's brought me back down to earth and said, no, this is a whiskey that everyone should be able to enjoy and taste and uh, and get a real feel for what Coach Bill is. And they're totally right. And I've really enjoyed this process of finding the right price point that I think works for everyone. For mm. some people, obviously, it's still a little bit of a stretch, but it's more of a that special moment whiskey, whereas others, I think, would probably you know have it as a whiskey on its own and it would be their whiskey probably. When it comes to spreading the word, I wonder, do you have any specific markets in mind now? Well, we're starting off in the UK, obviously. I mean, this is where the whiskey's made. I mean, Jen's from the, the UK. I'm partly from the UK. But we really want to go global. Like, I think Asia will be a good market for us. I believe Europe will be a really good one. Just, you know, because like, there's fans of like cars everywhere. There's fans of whiskeys everywhere. The, the look of the bottle is very nice. The, the liquid's phenomenal, as we've said. And later on, my goals next year is to expand into China and to the US, which is a bit it's a bit more challenging with e-commerce, like shipping into the US. There's a lot of different regulations, but those are two markets that I think will do really well once we can get in there. From a selfish point of view, the US is key for me because I live there. So I want to be able to walk into a bar or a restaurant and order a coach built. So yeah, yeah. from a selfish point of view... Yes, US next year, please. Exactly. <laughs> and, and obviously this is an e-commerce, so people can order it from online, from wherever. Most, like Brexit's <laughs> made that a bit challenging. <laughs> but yes, we're, we're like, our team is working very hard to get it to as many people in as many countries as we possibly can. Now, Jensen, now that I have you in the studio, I should ask a question about, not strictly about whiskey only, but also about when you are an F1 racer, for example, diet, how much whiskey and, you know, when you were actively racing, what kind of principles did you have about diet, what to eat, what not to eat, what to drink, what not to drink? I was very strict when I was racing because I'm 183 centimetres, so six foot which is tall for a Formula One driver. And you kind of have to be as light as possible when you're that tall because there's a limit for the car weight, including driver. And if you're over that limit, you're just throwing away lap time. So if you're 10 kilos over the weight limit, you're throwing away three to four tenths of a lap per lap, which is a lot of lap time. So I had to be very, very careful with my training, doing mostly cardiovascular work, some strength work, and eating a lot of protein, a lot of vegetables, and hardly any carbohydrates. And no whiskey. Exactly. <laughs> so so I, I saved my carbohydrates days for a good race weekend. So the Sunday night after a race weekend, or the Super Monday, as we used to call it, after a race weekend. So if I had a win, it was a Super Monday, and then we could go and have some fun. But um, no, after Formula One, you know, the Monaco Grand Prix, Montreal, Melbourne, it was the three M's, those three races were great fun after the race, so the Sunday evening. So that's when we would let our hair down as drivers and and relax a little bit. You know, I think we all work very hard. Mentally, it's very draining physically as well. So you need to let your hair down now and again and enjoy those special moments. And those were definitely Sunday evenings with a few other drivers. You know, there's quite a few drivers used to get together and spend time together. Who were you together? Who I I knew you were going to ask me that one. (laughs) Was Kimi Raikkonen from my country there? Kimi Raikkonen, I mean, we never really saw eye to eye when it came to race and we never really spoke much except maybe on a Sunday evening (laughs) with a bit of music and maybe one or two drinks but uh, Kimi came alive and he is a true personality he really is DC David Coulthard good friend I used to spend quite a bit of time with him when I was living in Monaco Daniel Ricciardo, he's he's a guy that I get on really well with you know he's a really good personality great for the sport of Formula 1 as well Jensen Button and George Kutsak is there. Together they have developed the new blended Scotch whisky, Coach Built. You are with the menu on Monocle 24. 
Let's then continue with this week's food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Maylee Evans. Thanks, Marcus. First up to the UK, where the hospitality sector continues to be affected by the pandemic despite the lifting of restrictions. In London, some restaurants are still being forced to close. Many venues are struggling to recruit enough staff to deal with the post-pandemic demand, and vacancies are at an all-time high since records began. Hopefully jobs in the hospitality sector will soon be filled before more restaurants are forced to shut their doors. In better news for Singapore's hospitality industry, restaurants and bars are seeing reservations jump after the government announced this week that larger gatherings would be allowed. Under the new easing of rules, alcohol will also be permitted to be sold later in the night. As a result, many restaurants experienced a large surge in bookings and things are looking brighter for those restaurateurs. Elsewhere, two more global brands have exited Russia as a result of the ongoing war in Ukraine. Heineken and Carlsberg have pulled out of the country in order to show solidarity with Ukraine. Russia is the world's fifth largest country in terms of overall beer drinking, so this will be a significant blow for the companies. For Carlsberg in particular, the group which owns Russia's biggest brewer, Baltica, this is going to particularly sting. And finally, Belgium's famous frites are feeling the effects of the global food crisis, also a result of the conflict. Sunflower oil has been one of Ukraine's biggest food exports and is a key ingredient for food makers worldwide. The continued Russian invasion has dealt a blow to EU-bound oil shipments and Belgium, where more than 60% of citizens are said to eat fries every week and as the world's biggest exporter of frozen fries, is particularly feeling the heat. That's all for this week. Back to you, Marcus. You are with the menu on Monocle 24. Before the dinner soundtrack recommendation, we hear from the celebrated Icelandic chef Solla Eriksdottir. For the last 40 years, the self-taught cook has been a champion of the benefits of vegan living and has shared some of her favourite recipes and tips in her new book, Vegan at Home, Recipes for a Modern Plant-Based Lifestyle. Monocle's Charlie Filma course recently caught up with Sola in London ahead of her book launch. He began by asking her how much veganism and people's approach towards it has changed over the last few decades. It has changed hugely because in the beginning it was mostly that you were cooking your beans and grains and you know and everything tasted like a little bit like you added a woolen sock in the pot and that's true and then you were so aware if you were invited to dinner or somewhere to eat that you were eating weaker <laughs> Today, you can have a meal that is just so flavorful with a really good quality food cooked in amazing way by extraordinary chefs. And you don't think about if it is like Mm. vegan or something. It's just a really, really good food. And obviously, that's how the food's changed. But do you think attitudes towards it have changed as well? I mean, obviously, it's definitely on the up compared to what, 40 years ago. But do you think people are generally more open and are embracing it a bit more now? Yes. And that is also what I love. I love to see the young people, the activists. And that is also very interesting that because 40 years ago, it was all about you were doing it because of your health, you know. 
But today, it's like a political movement, especially part of it, even though I am a little bit old school because I have to eat more healthy. I cannot be a junk food vegan because <laughs> I'm too old. My system can't handle it. I will be like a fat raisin in in, <laughs> in short period of time. But what I love is that today is like the young people, they do it, especially in the beginning, just because this is their philosophy that we are don't kill animal. We're here today to talk about your new book, Vegan at Home. Could you maybe just give our listeners a little bit of an overview of what to expect? Yeah, it is like in two parts. In the first part, I teach you how to do all your basics. Because I think even though today you can go and you can buy it in almost all supermarkets, it is something when you do it from scratch, you get more conscious about a lot of things. You'll be more connected to the earth, to the food, to food waste, to the global situation, you know, environmentally. And then the second half is then you use in all recipes, then you use something from the basics. And if you don't have time or can't do it or won't do it, then you can just go and buy that basic in a supermarket. Mm -hmm. And I try to update it a little bit. You know, I try to because I love like all the cuisines of the world that have a bunch of flavor. I can't say that there is one that is my favorite because I would say, oh, Thai is my favorite. <laughs> and then in like, oh, and I love Indian as well. And oh my God, the Mexican. You know, it's just more like where the vegetables and the plant-based is highlight with very good taste and beautiful quality of raw material. So that is what I have grabbed in the book. So I try to give you ideas. I think it's interesting that you, you kind of mention the fact that in the book there are opportunities, I guess, to make the specific components. You know, it's not relying on buying something from the shop. Um, from what I gather is you learned to make these because they weren't in the shop. For many years, you know, you couldn't buy dairy product alternatives that just wasn't an option so you had to make them yourself yes and especially like because i changed my diet when i lived in copenhagen because i went there and then when i moved back to iceland then it's the atlantic ocean when you get on the other side or in the mid you know like iceland is then you realize you're very isolated it costs a lot to fly or ship things <laughs> in and we have been like farmers so then when I came there, I couldn't buy tofu. There were so many things I couldn't buy. So I had to make them myself. And I learned that in Copenhagen. So I could do it all. And you could get almost all the raw materials because like you could get dried beans and all those things. So it was really easy. So I started to do it myself. Because what I love about the book, my daughter, oldest daughter, she's taking the photos. So we work together and she has been reminding me, oh, mom, do you remember when you changed our home into tofu factory? Or do you remember when you fermented everything? I was afraid of <laughs> what about me? You know, I love that, that she has those memories from young age and she thought everybody was doing it, you know. 
She thought everybody is composting. Everybody is doing all that. But it's quite unique at the time. Yeah. And I guess the book, obviously, one thing that kind of runs throughout is the simplicity. You know, a barrier for a lot of people to be making their own nut-based cheeses and things like that. You know, they worry it's too complicated, too difficult. Was it part of your motivation to try and dispel that myth and, you know, show that it's not too complicated and that you can do it? Yeah, you are totally right. That was part of what I would like to do. Because, like I said, I get a lot of respect because of that superpower I told you. But it is not. It's everything is really, really easy and simple. And also what I think is very interesting because then people say, yeah, but this is so time consuming, Mm -hmm. you know. And okay, if people are really, really honest about themselves, you come home from work Sometimes you sit down, you go on your social media for maybe one and a half hour. It takes like less than one and a half hour to make tofu, you know. It takes less than half an hour to do nut milk, you know. You can't hide about that things are time consuming. It's more like, how would I love to spend my time? You kind of touched on it earlier about your experimental phase and kind of turning the house into a tofu factory. You are self-taught primarily. A lot of the things you worked out yourself. Do you think that gives you a different approach compared to, you know, classically trained chefs, especially when it comes to to veganism, I guess? Yes. And I was having this conversation with a friend of mine who is a chef. And I was like, you don't know how talented you are. And he was like, okay. And then I was like... Because I wish, sometimes I wish I would have like a classical training like you do. Because you are so fast and do everything you handcraft in the kitchen. I get, you know, starstruck when I look (laughs) at your hands. They are like... And then when it comes to making a vegan dish... I get so surprised because he was doing a dish for this restaurant... That was like celeriac three ways. And I said, okay, if I go and I have celeriac three ways and a friend I bring with me is having like a ribeye with some very comforting other items, in half an hour, I start to fart. And in one hour, you know, I am hungry again. (laughs) And then I realized that me... Having lived this, you know, I am a human, you know, like a meat eater is a human. We need to be having some comfort and we need to be feeling like, okay, I am full, you know. Mm. We need to have fuel and then we go to a restaurant. And then if the chef is meat eater, he will get a brilliant meat eating dish. If the chef is not and don't have any understanding of about this function in a plant-based body, then there is lacking something and I don't get that because I want to see the chefs of the future being as good cooking plant-based as meat because you don't need to go all in just understand and do it because this is a wave Mm. the time is now and i think we need more good normal chef to be plant-based 
in their kitchen because then it can spread beautifully because the globe needs it. Do you think that, you know, in the next five, ten years, we will start to see it put on a kind of even pedestal mm-hmm. and chefs will give it the time that you think it deserves? Yeah, I think, I think that and I hope it will because it is so strange when you are a mother, you always think about your children's future. And then something else happens when you are a grandmother, because then you are more, you have grown, you know, and then you are like, oof, then you realize that everything goes so fast. Also, both good things and bad things and also about our planet, you Mm. know. So I think, I hope this will be that we will think about the children of the future, because it is not just about that we love to have a... A fat burger. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that I did find particularly amusing in the book was you told a story of how you went to one of the best restaurants in Iceland in the 80s. Um, Well, the meal you were given didn't sound the most appetising, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. How do you think Iceland has embraced veganism? You know, comparing that to the kind of traditional cuisines of Iceland, is there a place for it? Is it growing or do you think that it's kind of at odds with each other? No, there plays a big part that we are a small country with like 350 to 70,000 people. So it is like everything spreads really fast. And I remember when I opened up my first restaurant, it was vegan, it was 1994. And it got hugely popular because it was a gap in the market. But today... Every restaurant has both a vegan dish and a vegetarian dish on their menu because we we spread fast. And, <laughs> and the vegan movement in Iceland, it is huge. And it is really, you can hear it very well. And maybe just to finish, could you maybe tell us about one or two recipes that are your particular favourites? Perhaps you could even go through the, the four that you're going to be cooking at the launch of the book event. Yeah, I will be cooking one starter that is actually raw. I make this nut cheese, which I use also a lot of fresh herbs. And I use lime leaf and coriander and, you know, and it tastes delicious. So I wrap it in a roll of crochet and that is really good. That is the starter. And then the Pantechnicon, they make one dish, smoked asparagus, really nice. And then I make the main, and that is like a vegan scallops or a vegan king oyster mushroom I marinate and I put on the grill with some broccolini and a really nice creme fraiche made out of pine nuts. And then I end the dessert is pavloa made out of aquafaba that is like the liquid from the cooked chickpeas. And I have a favorite, favorite, favorite in the book, and that is like a chili, where I don't use a lot of beans, because normally chili are like filled with beans, but I use beetroot. And beetroot, when you cook it and grate it and cook it with all those beautiful spices you have in the chili and the tomatoes and that, it gets so, so tasty. There, some magic happens in the pot. 
That was Solla Eric Stottir speaking with Monaco's Charlie Film Court. Her book Vegan at Home, Recipes for a Modern Plant-Based Lifestyle, is published by Fiden and is out now. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday if you're listening in San Francisco. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods for great recipes. This show was edited and mixed by David Stevens and I am Markus Hippi. Once again, we finish this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. From Iceland, here are Off Monsters and Men with Visitor. Thanks for listening. Like my parents' house